today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Now again, everything seems to be going so well right now. They are in a good relationship with the majority of the people. People are coming to salvation. But beloved, that's exactly when the enemy of our souls will look to attack you and I. When things are going relatively smooth, when things are going relatively well, and many times it's during those times that we let our guard down. And that's when the enemy finds a place or or an area in our lives to be able to attack. And again, that's why we need to be continually on guard against his attacks in every area of our lives. It frequently happens that when you're doing well and you're making a great impact for the kingdom, the enemy may attack. Satan can't stand success for the kingdom of God and knows you're likely less alert for his presence. Today, Pastor David will challenge you to be on guard. When Satan can't measure up to the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, he'll attack through people accusing slandering, and perhaps even hurting you. God provided Stephen with peace and bravery and promises to be with you as well. Here's Pastor David in the book of Acts chapter 6 as he begins his message, The Martyrdom of Stephen. God is good. And all the time, but do you really believe it? Over about a week's time, I've heard news of one that's a close friend of mine, other is a man I know, but I uh, I just know by by an acquaintance because he's a Calvary pastor. Longtime friend of mine, as a matter of fact, he's been a friend of ours, I think, since, uh, gosh, the early 80s. He was my... uh, We call it a tool buddy. We work construction together. He and I were electricians working for the same company, working on the same jobs a lot of times. He's about the exact same age as I am. I give him a hard time. He's a little bit older, so he's the older guy. Uh, He uh, was not feeling good a couple of weeks ago. He went to the ER. They ran some tests. They said, no, you need to go to another doctor, to a specialist. They diagnosed him with stage 4 melanoma. Uh, both in his lungs, his liver, and in his bones. Just like that. From feeling bad, going to the ER, to suddenly stage four cancer. He's a believer, and he's a great brother in the Lord, and he knows God has a hold of this. Not a problem. The pastor that I know, a Calvary pastor over in Spring Valley, California, got a call not uh, just this past week here, uh, actually, it was around uh, September 17th is when the events happened. He had an adult son who had walked away from the Lord a long time ago, walked away from the family, everything, living over in Washington, D.C. He was at a bar on the 17th of September, got so drunk he fell off the bar stool, hit his head on the floor so hard that it did damage to his frontal lobe. He went unconscious and was in a coma for about four days. 
during those four days at the same time over in California, this pastor, his wife, and this young man's mother passed away while he was in the coma, not even knowing what was going on. They've tried to reach out to the son over in California with some other pastor connections, but uh, again, he's, he, he was in the hospital. He didn't want to hear any of it because the last several years he's been living a flamboyant uh, homosexual lifestyle. All of these things going on, and now this pastor needs to deal with a son who has walked away from the Lord years ago, who now has the brain capacity of about a six-year-old. God is good. All the time. And all the time. It's hard to receive that at times. Amen? Amen? But beloved, if that is not the foundation of our life, every circumstance that we run into, our world will be shattered, rattled, and crushed. The only stability that you and I have is the assurity that God is good and all the time. We're in the book of Acts as we've been going through uh, the book of Acts. We've made it into chapter 6. I invite you, if you've got your Bibles this morning, to uh, turn there in the book of Acts. We're going to be covering a specific portion this morning, actually a pretty long portion. We're going to be going from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, so far, as we've seen the church, as we've gone through the book of Acts, the church itself has had relative ease. They've had relative uh, freedom. Only sporadic persecution has come about, and most of that persecution has come about uh, particularly directly to the apostles, as again, they were taken because they continued to proclaim the message of the gospel. They were doing it primarily up there on the Temple Mound in the area called Solomon's Porch to the south of where the temple is itself. And again, they had been arrested, they had been beaten, they had been threatened, they had been put in jail and warned never to speak of that man's name again. But as soon as they were released, We've seen in these chapters that we've gone through here lately, they would go right back to preaching and proclaiming the message of Christ. But today we're going to see some things that change, change drastically within the church. Last week we looked at the need to set up or to appoint individuals to be in charge of caring for the physical needs of not only the widows, but I believe that their responsibility went beyond the widows, really to the disbursement of uh, needs within the whole church body. It wasn't the call or the ministry direction for the apostles to take care of these things, and so they appointed that group of seven, and we looked at that at the beginning of chapter 6 last week. And according to chapter 6, verse 3, this group of seven were to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And again, the proselyte from Antioch, uh, Nicholas, that means that he was a Gentile. He became a, a Jew, and then as a Jew, he became a Christian. So quite the journey for that man. I'd love to hear his story. Uh, down in verse 7, it tells us, Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many, even of the priests, were obedient to the faith. 
Now, again, everything seems to be going so well right now. They are in a good relationship with the majority of the people. People are coming to salvation. But, beloved, that's exactly when the enemy of our souls will look to attack you and I. When things are going relatively smooth, when things are going relatively well, and many times it's during those times that we let our guard down. And that's when the enemy finds a place or or an area in our lives to be able to attack. And again, that's why we need to be continually on guard against his attacks in every area of our lives. As we continue on in chapter 6, we find that one of this group of seven, Stephen, was doing more than just food distribution. Look at verse 8, if you would. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. We need to quickly understand that Stephen and Philip, as as well as the other group of seven, were so much more than simply table waiters. They weren't just the guys at the back of the truck handing out food boxes. There was so much more that, again, involved their life and ministry. Their ministry wasn't confined just simply to taking care of the Christian widows or making sure that the physical needs of the body of Christ were cared for. They had that responsibility, but we're going to see very quickly that they did much, much more than that. Theirs was a ministry to God and to his people. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to be a witness of the power and of the love of God to all of the people that they came in contact with. And we're going to see that in Stephen's life. We're going to see it in Philip's life. These seven men, they weren't novices. They weren't new believers. They had a good handle. They had a good understanding, not only of the Old Testament scriptures and Judaism, but now they'd gained a great understanding, again, of the teachings of Christ, uh, the teachings of the apostles, what it means to be believers and strong in their Christian faith. And God was using them in a very mighty and a powerful way. And just as in verse 8, where we read that Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he did great wonders and signs among the people. Well, we're also going to see over in chapter 8 where God was using Philip. He uses Philip in powerful ways. Not only did he give him the gift of evangelism, but Philip himself was doing many miracles and signs as well as casting out even demons. It was truly a powerful time in the church. Multitudes were being saved as the gospel was being shared in a powerful, in a real, and in an open way. Everything seemed to be going so well. And then we get to verse 9. In verse 9, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Guys, we don't have any idea how many days or or weeks or months it was from the time that Stephen and the other seven got appointed to the distribution and the, the help of those in needs to the time of this particular event. Could have been days, could have been weeks, could have been months. We just don't know. But sometime after their appointment, while Stephen was busy about doing the work of ministry, while he was busy about sharing the gospel, he gets into this debate with a group of Jewish men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, this synagogue of the freedmen uh, was apparently located somewhere in Jerusalem, separate from others. There's a lot of speculation about this particular synagogue, this particular 
particular group of men, uh, but really all we see is just what we have here in the scriptures here in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. What we do know, again, the, the cities and the places that it speaks of that they were from, Cyrene is on the northern coastline of Libya. Alexandria is on the coastline of Egypt. As a matter of fact, Alexandria was the Hellenistic center of Egypt. Cilicia wasn't a city. It was actually a region in Turkey along the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and Asia or Asia Minor is all of pretty much what we call Turkey today. And apparently because these men weren't from Jerusalem, they had set up their own place of worship, their own synagogue. And many that read this, scholars and theologians look at this and say, well, the synagogue of the freedmen, that must mean that at one point in time they were slaves, perhaps they were slaves to the Roman Empire of some sort. But again, this is all the information we have, so we're not going to speculate beyond that much more. However, of all the cities and the places that are spoken about here, the most interesting one to me is the region called Cilicia. Now, when you look at that particular region a little bit closer, you realize that the major city in Cilicia is actually the coastal city of Tarsus. So at this point in time, if you've studied your Bible very much, suddenly your mind ought to be going back to someone that we know of in the New Testament who was from Tarsus, a fellow by the name of Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as the Apostle Paul. This is actually what Paul himself declared about his own heritage. We find a little bit later in the book of Acts, Paul himself saying that I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. Now enough on that point right now, but it's actually going to come back around at the end of this study. What we read here in Acts 6, verses 9 and 10, is that as they debated with Stephen, they couldn't get around the wisdom of God that was working in Stephen. Luke makes it really clear that it was the wisdom and the spirit that was working in him as he spoke and as he debated with these men. And so, since they could not out-debate him on the, on the fact of the scriptures and on the essence of the scriptures, they decided they would attack him another way. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They get this rascal of characters, these ne'er-do-wells to come and say these wicked things about him. They stirred up the people, they stirred up the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them, seized him, and brought him into the council. Once again, by false witnesses, by scoundrels and ne'er-do-wells, by the false testimony, they stirred up the people against a man who had done nothing wrong, a man who was being led by God to do the right thing. And beloved, I want you to know, Satan still does that today. He looks for every opportunity. When it speaks of bringing Stephen to the council, it was to bring him to the Sanhedrin, the council of the 71. Now, in every Jewish city, there was what was called the Lesser Sanhedrin, a group of judges for these cities made up of 23 individuals. But in Jerusalem was located the Great 
Sanhedrin. Now, this was the Supreme Court of Israel. And that was, again, the Council of the 71. They were located there in Jerusalem. Uh, they met there at the temple. They had a special room that was all their own called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. They conveyed court every day except festival days and on the Sabbath. The high priest would be in the center of the judges with 35 judges on either side of them. The accused then would stand in the middle and be able to plead his case to the entire court. Here, the synagogue of the freedmen had stirred up such a controversy that they were now able to bring Stephen before them on this day. And in verse 13, it says, they also, again, stirred up false witnesses, more scoundrels who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. Several interesting things that are going on at this point. Number one, we see this trial and very reminiscent, almost identical to the trial of Jesus. Brought before the council, false witnesses coming up, declaring things, taking the words that he had spoken and twisting them around to mean something else in order to bring charges against him. These trumped up charges, not only against Jesus, but now against Stephen. We also see that God was doing something within Stephen's life even at that point. And beloved, I believe that as Stephen was there and these false witnesses were were coming against him, that again, just the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit within his life began to radiate out of his life so greatly. It says that they saw his face as the face of an angel. And here Stephen is being accused of going against the customs of Moses, and now his face is actually shining just like the face of Moses after Moses Moses had met and been with God. Warren Wiersbe tells us on this. He says, certainly the members of the Sanhedrin would recall Moses' face shining. It was as though God was saying, this man isn't against Moses. He's like Moses. He is my faithful servant. Stephen is there. He's before the council. The charges have been placed. And now we move into chapter 7, and there in verse 1 we read, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Now, very likely, most likely, the high priest at that time was still Caiaphas, the one who was the high priest during the trials of Jesus. But Stephen, rather than directly addressing these false charges that were against him, he actually uses this opportunity to school all of these leaders of Israel. He's going to school them on the history of Israel. He's going to school them on the move of God within Israel. And he's going to school them on the fact that Israel all through their lives had continued to reject the spirit and the move of God. In the midst of all of those years of God showing himself, they continued to turn their backs on God. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, listen. And then he begins from Abraham, he goes all through the fathers of Israel, 
And all along the way, he reminds those leaders of Israel how often they and the whole nation had rebelled against the very plan and the very purpose and the words of God. He begins with the promise to Abraham. We'll look at that in a moment, verses 2 through 8. And again, he speaks of the very beginning and call of God to Abraham to begin the very nation that he's bringing. Then he moves on to the sojourn of Joseph. Joseph, again, who God used in a mighty way, who everything everything looks so horrible to Joseph, you know, from the outside eyes. Again, all of his brothers turning against him, telling their father that he was dead, selling him into slavery, being into prison, being forgotten about that. All of these things going against Joseph, and yet God did such a powerful thing in and through Joseph. He's going to speak to them again about the deliverance of the people who were under bondage through Moses. And Moses actually becomes a major portion of what Stephen is about to tell them. He also speaks to them about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle that God said, I want you to build this in order that the people might know that I'm in their presence. But the idea and the understanding was that that tabernacle was only temporary. Things were going to change. And then he moves on to speak about the temple itself. And as he speaks about the temple, that again, yes, the symbol of God's presence, but not the home of God. So as we look at this this morning, as you follow along in your Bibles, let's look at this. Verses 2 through 8, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, listen, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place." Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. First of all, he speaks of God's promises to Abraham to make out of Abraham a great nation, that from that nation, again, all nations were going to be blessed, that there were going to be times of trials, there were going to be times of troubles, there's going to be times of bondage. He, but he also spoke of the fact that God had given a covenant to Israel and God was going to keep his word because, again, he had covenanted with Abraham and with his descendants. Now we look at verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, the the 12 sons of Jacob, becoming envious of their brother Joseph, they sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first 
And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Thanks for joining Pastor David today as we study the book of Acts on the open word. Though our program has come to an end today, your time in God's word can continue. It could be beneficial to go back and study today's passage in Acts on your own and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about what you read. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor David, you'll find them at theopenword.com. We'd love to meet you too. If you're in the Casa Grande area, please join us this weekend at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. For directions and service times, give us a call at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Now let's turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Thanks, Chris. You know, as this ministry continues to grow and reach further into the community and around the nation with the message of the gospel, I know the enemy wants to stop it. I also know that prayer is a big part of holding him back. Would you take time to pray for us every time you tune in to The Open Word? Pray too for our listeners, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who may have yet to place their faith in Jesus. This last category especially needs prayer. It could be that the next message you hear may be the first time they're learning about the hope that's only found in Jesus. Please pray that their hearts would be open and that they'd make a decision to follow Jesus forever. Hey, thanks for praying, and thank you for being a loyal listener to The Open Word.